let's start with a word of prayer, and then we'll kind of go through what we're going to do today and for the next six weeks, okay? Let's go to the Lord. Dear Holy Father, Lord, we come before you and we praise you. We praise you that uh, we have the opportunity to be here in your house, um, to gather with fellow believers, to worship you, and to spur each other on to love and good deeds. And Lord, we thank you so much that you've provided for us your word, Lord. And as we dig in a little bit to your word, as we understand what it is for our lives and the qualities that it has and the attributes that it has, Lord, I pray that, um, Lord, we would um, come away worshiping you more. Lord, as we delve into a little bit of the history of of the scriptures today, Lord, I pray that you would help us to have faith, faith, Lord, that, uh, in the fact that you are accomplishing your work of building your church, and one of the ways you're doing that is through um, the preservation of your word. And Lord, we praise you for that, and it is a gift to us. We ask that you would just bless this time and that our hearts would be um, pliable to what you would have us learn today. And may in all things, Lord, whether it be my teaching or the hearing, may it be to your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, well... Several potential distractions for me today include the PowerPoint presentation, which is amazing, I think. We'll see if I can keep up with the pace of actually preparing a PowerPoint presentation each week. But this week I did. Um, You obviously have handouts. If you don't, I think Philip has those as the representative of McKinsey, and he's making copies if you need more. Um, Another thing is my children are here, so if I, you know, a couple of them at least, if I have to reprimand them, please understand that. Um, let's see, my wife is not here. She was supposed to teach the, the older girls Sunday school class, but our daughter is sick. So some of you guys might have trickled in here because of that. So anyway, lots of things to cover. So, um, I wanted to, here's the PowerPoint. So I'll have to learn how to teach to the PowerPoint and my notes and the scriptures. So we'll, we'll juggle all these things. Nancy, very fancy transition right there, if you, as you notice. Um, as well, let's go back real quick. How we got the Bible, this is Adult Sunday School, it's February 22nd, I think, 2014, is that right? And at least it was yesterday, no. All right, so we are going to talk this six weeks about how we got the Bible, as opposed to every time I've taught church history before, let's first say that, um, our church kind of does a different thing, a different theme for Adult Sunday School, and one of the themes we talk about one or two times per year is church history, and... um, Generally speaking, that takes a segment of time, and we look to see how the church has um, developed during that period of time. However, the elders um, have granted me my request to do something more topical this time as opposed to going through a chronological view of church history. So the last time we gathered together and I taught some of it and Andy taught a couple weeks of it, we went through the book of Acts to talk about the early church. And... I know you guys were probably getting real excited thinking we'd talk about the early church fathers, maybe guys like you know, Justin Martyr or Origen or Ignatius or something like that. We're not talking about them right now, so sorry to disappoint you. Um, so we instead are going to talk about how we got the Bible. There's one primary reason why I felt like this was a necessary topic for us, and that is there is an exhibit coming to Calvary in May, and it's called the Truth Remains Exhibit. And what it is is a collection of really old Bibles, some of the first uh, printed Bibles in, um, from Europe, um, pretty much post right around the beginning of the Reformation to post-Reformation. So there's a private collection where this gentleman has gone across the world and found these, and he's collected and purchased 
these amazing Bibles. And this exhibit's really cool, and you, I have the website here. You can go to truthremains.org um, just to get an idea of what, um, what it's going to be like. Um, it's really neat. I've seen it. I've been there. It's not just, you know, when you go to a museum exhibit, if you want to see something, artifacts from the Titanic or something like that, you walk in and everything's under glass, and you go in there and you just look at it. Oh, look, there's a fork that was underwater for 100 years or whatever. Um, but instead, this stuff, you get to get, you get to touch the Bibles. You get to thumb through them. So you get to find your favorite scripture in the scriptures of the time of William Tyndale or somebody like that from uh, the 1500s or 1600s. So there's a ton of these Bibles. They're really neat, and I think they're a, a great blessing. Um, so that's why I think it's necessary for us to see how did we get the Bible that we have that we hold in our hands today. I thought I'd have this really neat I, I thought about this early on, and I didn't do it. I was going to set up a table, and I was going to take all the Bibles that we have on our shelf at home. There's about 30. We have about 30 Bibles at home, and I was going to put them out and say, this, I mean, that is all the Scriptures in my home myself, and just to see that at one point the Scriptures weren't readily available to people, and now we have them, and we're blessed with them. So um, that is the primary reason why I wanted to talk about this, because I think that Truth Remains exhibit is going to be really exciting, um, I will dare to say awesome um, for our uh, viewing, and it's a great blessing that our church gets to host that. And that is coming, I believe, May 17th, 17th and 18th, okay? Um, of course, I said all that without looking at my notes. Okay, um, I think I've said everything. Visit thetruthremains.org. I was on there a couple days ago, and I, I almost wanted to just play all the videos they have on there for you guys because they're really neat, but you can do that on your own. Um, but besides that, besides the obvious reason that we um, are having the Truth Remains exhibit, there, there's other reasons why um, under, an understanding of how we got the Bible is important. Um, number one, a couple, just a couple things I just thought of on my own here. We live in an age where truth in general no longer matters. It's been replaced by rampant relativism. But uh, us having a better understanding of what the scriptures are and where they came from is important. Uh, the historicity, to, make, to use a big term, of the Bible has been under constant attack, especially in this postmodern world, still referring to that rampant relativism. And then additionally, God's word has always been questioned, right? And it's been undermined by Satan. Genesis 3, obviously that's Satan perverting God's word. Uh, the reliability... The, the fact that we can rely on the scriptures because of the history of where how they've been passed down is an important thing for us to study. We can see God's work to preserve his word, and we can also see the faithfulness of our ancestors to protect and pass down the Bible to us. And they did that with great cost, and it was because they saw such a great value in the scriptures. So just that is relevance for today as to why we're talking about this. Let's see, make sure I have this in order here. Yes, good. You guys can see that. I was a little nervous with the white. You guys might not be able to see in the back. I assume you can. This is the schedule. Today, I, pri I primarily want to focus on the introduction to our study and a basic, basic doctrine of the Bible. Just talk about five or six qualities of the scriptures and go through some scriptures about that just to set our, kind of do a systematic theology. Please understand that is not exhaustive. It's hardly exhaustive, as you'll see. Um, but it is just to whet our appetite to have an understanding of the scriptures. Um, we've had systematic theology classes in this very hour that took, that I think we talked 
one week about authority. You can take an entire seminary class on the authority of Scripture. So please understand, I'm, I'm just trying to touch on some generic things related to the Scriptures. Um, the second thing we'll do next week is talk about ancient biblical manuscripts, how they came to be, who wrote them, what did they use to write with, what were they written on, um, those type of things. It's going to be kind of more historical in that sense, but I hope we can see the preservation of God's work as we talk about that. Week three, we'll talk about how we got the Old Testament. Somehow that's going to take one week. It'll probably take longer than that, so I'm just going to prepare you for that. We're going to have to bleed some of this in, or maybe, we'll, maybe, maybe I'll get a seventh week. I'm sure Joe won't have a problem with that. Um, next, we'll talk about, in, in each of the categories of the Old and New Testament, so week four, how we got the New Testament, we'll also talk about canonization, which, which books belong. Hey, what's the deal with the Apocrypha? Why does the Catholic Bible have more books? What are these books? Are they inspired or are they not? Why do we have them? Those are important questions. We'll talk about order. Why are the scriptures in a certain order? Um, what languages they were written in? Um, those type of things. Week five, we'll talk about Sola Scriptura, it's the Bible in the Reformation. Um, one of the rallying points, obviously, of the, script, of the Reformation is Sola Scriptura, or by Scripture alone. Um, so we can get, and the, the key of Sola Scriptura, too, is that for, for a thousand to twelve hundred years or so, the Bible was written in the language of the church. And the Latin Vulgate was the primary means of uh, communicating or th that the Bible was written in. And in the Reformation, not only was the Bible readily available to people because it was printed as opposed to handwritten by scribes, um, it was also available because it had been translated into the vernacular, the language of the people. So that's, that's a huge aspect of sola scriptura, and that'll then bring us to a history. There's no way I can do a history of the English Bible in one week. I might need, I might need 10 weeks. So who's, who's up next? <laughs> Let's just prepare for that. Um, the history of the English Bible, which is a lot of what truth remains the whole organization exists for to talk about the history of the English Bible and the majority of the Bibles that they do have I think this is right are English Bibles if I'm not mistaken um, so that's what we'll really get into it about Tyndale and uh, Wycliffe first before that and um, talk about the King James Bible and all that so I think all that will be helpful that's exciting I, I I love church history for those of you guys that don't know me it's a, it's it's something I could probably read church history all the time and biographies and um, different studies within the history of the church. So it's a passion for me. So I hope that comes out as we talk today. So um, that's all we've got. Okay, so i got to hit this button, right? Okay, yes. All right. I kind of do presentations at work a lot, but it's, it's some, somehow this is a little bit different for me. Um, okay, so let's, let's talk about uh, – we're going to talk about five – one, two – Three, four, five character characteristics or attributes of the scriptures. Now these are brief, but there's I've I've stolen not stolen because I've I've credited him Wayne Gruden's systematic theology um, with each of the definitions of each of these characteristics of the scriptures on your handout. Do you have your handout? On your handout, I've given you space to write based on your what you feel like is necessary. Um, but then we will talk about, besides uh, these different categories, we'll also talk about how those categories have been fleshed out in different uh, creeds or statements of faith um, in a couple different ways. One, um, the Westminster Confession. We'll look at what our mission statement says on our website here as a church. 
and look at some other modern day examples of that. If you do not have a handout, I think they're making copies, so be patient. All right, so first, I think it's necessary that we look at um, the inspiration of the authoritative word of God. So that's a big word. This is pretty much authority, right? So God's word is authoritative for our lives. Uh, the definition that Grudem gives is the authority of Scripture means that all the words of Scripture are God's words in such a way to disbelieve in, disbelieve any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. So all the words of Scripture are God's words is the primary thing here. Let's turn in your Bible, so if you have those, let's look at it. We're going to go to this reference a couple different times. Um, but we'll go here. Different translations obviously say things differently here. So 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 I'm reading from the ESV, and it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The key here, though, is all Scripture is breathed out by God. I think King James says, by the inspiration of God, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, NIV says, God breathed. Uh, so all Scripture is breathed out by God. So there's definite involvement by the Lord in the writing, the assimilation of the word. It is his words that are being spoken. All right, Second Peter, if we can go there, one. Turn it the wrong way. 20 and 21. This is Peter, obviously. I go to Second Peter. All right, twenty and twenty-one. I would like to have. I wish I could have everybody read, but for the sake of the recording, we're as we. I need to read. So if you get tired of my voice, I'm sorry. Um, verse. Tw- let's start with nineteen. And we have something more sure: the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture. Come from, comes from someone's own imp- interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it's God's Spirit guiding men in the development of the Word of God. All right, so 1 Corinthians 14, 37 next. So that's, that, that's probably, that's talking about the scriptures that they already had at the time, the scriptures of the Old Testament primarily. So 1 Corinthians 14, 37. So what did the apostles believe as they were writing to the people? First Corinthians 14, 37. This is Paul against the Corinthians saying, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. So Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is giving authority by saying that the words that he has are a command from the Lord. So Paul's writing, he understands to some degree that it is the the word of the Lord. Additionally, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Turn with me there. 
This is Paul again. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, so the, what they're teaching them, you accepted it as, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Okay, so they're passing down God's word to the people. I have one more, and I don't know if this is on your handout because I added this one. 2 Peter 3, 14 through 16. Um, man, lots of Bibles turning. We all haven't converted to the electrical digital age. Um, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them, in them of these matters. Let's stop right there for right now. We'll get to the other part later. Um, so once again, um, he wrote according to the wisdom given to him. So another, this is Peter ascribing authority to the words of Paul. So that's, that's kind of interesting, these, these two parallel apostles um, and Peter giving credit to what Paul was saying. Um, so the authority of God's word is tied up in the fact that it's inspired by God. Um, there's The older term is, I think, plenary inspiration, which means it's fully inspired by God. Um, and that's um, a term that we, we treasure here at Calvary. So I think we first need to come, when studying the word of God systematically, we understand that it is God's word and it has authority. Okay? That's number one. Did you see how we could flesh that out a whole lot more? <laughs> Next term we'll look at is the inerrancy of the scriptures. And this is a hotly debated topic, especially during the last 100 years or so. Um, but let's define inerrancy according to Grudem. Um, the inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Following that line of logic there? So in the original manuscripts, I think it's an important thing to understand, right? Um, because... There's God's preservation in how we got this English Bible, but the, um, it's the original manuscripts and how they were written by those authors that are inspired. Okay? So as we translate, as we translate translations of translations, um, there's, there is potential for human error to come into play. Right? So that's kind of why there's a science behind the translation of the scriptures, right? Because you want to get it right. And that's why we're constantly going back as closely as possible to those original sources. Okay, so that's, I think that's a huge part of this definition, that in the original manuscripts. But then that it does not affirm anything, this seems like a double negative here, does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Okay, so, um, so that anything that's stated in Scripture shouldn't be contrary to fact. Okay, so let's look at a couple passages for that. Um, See if I have something else to note here. Nope, we're good. All right, Psalm 12, 6. See, I put these up here so you guys can get ahead of me. Then I don't have the benefit of y'all turning. Okay, so this is... So 
let's see, I have some something to talk about here besides before we get to that. So just a, a, a brief statement about the definition, though. The Bible always tells the truth, and it always tells us the truth concerning everything it talks about. I think we probably mostly would all agree with that. And then scriptures testify about the truthfulness of God's word. The scriptures tell us that. And emphasis is on truthfulness, not on precision. Okay, so if there's two contrary, what appear to be contrary things in scripture, you can say things, let's say something you could say is, hey, Matt's at church today. Matt's in the Sunday school room at church today. Those are two statements. You see what I'm saying? But So scripture at different times could describe things differently, but still it's a true statement, right? Um, so it's important to understand that not every single thing in scripture is precisely narrowed down um, as we would like to see fit. But we'll see why that is later on because there's another characteristic of the scriptures that we need to understand. Um, so the Bible does not tell us all the facts on a given subject, but what it does say is true. Okay, those are just important statements for us to understand. So that being the case, let's look at Psalm 12.6. David says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. So there's no false, there's nothing false in something that is pure and purified seven times. Next, Proverbs 30, verse 5. I'm intentionally sprinkling in the Old and New Testament for you guys. All right, so Proverbs 3, 35. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. I have a little note here that I put in my Bible. Every word of the God proves true. And also I put is tested. So at some point somebody had taught me that, that the word of the Lord is tested and is to be true. Um, even in other parts of Scripture, if you go to Numbers 23, 19, here's Balaam speaking about God and who he is. God using Balaam to ascribe to him character of him. Go to Numbers 23:19. So Balaam is going to Balak to tell him what the Lord has spoken. Verse 18 says, And Balaam took up his discourse and said, Rise, Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. In verse 19, this is the doxology about who God is and the truthfulness of him. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said... And will he not do it? Or has he spoken? And will he not fulfill it? So the, the words from Balaam are, God is different than man. What he says is true um, in that he doesn't lie. He's nothing like the son of men who do those things. So that is the, the what we, when we talk about the inerrancy of scripture, it's pointing out and emphasizing the fact that God's word is truth. And within its, the confines of God's word, it does not contain any error. Okay? All right, next, hit my little button, the clarity of the Bible. So the Bible is clear. The definition here is the clarity of Scripture means that the Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who read it, seeking God's help and being willing to follow it. So the Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood. So there's a clear 
um, understanding of the scriptures. Which this, this is important because this is the reason the Roman Catholic Church from 500 A.D. until probably, I don't know, I'm trying to think when the Roman Catholic Church allowed for the scriptures to be translated into English, but why they opposed the Reformation and the translation of the scriptures into the vernacular people. They did not believe that the scriptures were clear enough for the people to understand on their own. Okay, so this, the, the fact that the Bible is understandable, it's clear in its meaning, is important, and it's, it, is a, it's, it is a huge aspect of the view of sola scriptura. Um, and I think that's one of the things that, that we need to have an understanding of as believers. That's not to say there's not hard passages. So we'll actually, um, Peter tells us that there are hard passages, and let's go to that. Second Peter 3, 15 through 16. Okay, so earlier we kind of read this verse. Let's start with 15, though. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. And there's, here's the crux of it here that Peter is saying. There are some things in them, talking about the letters, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So he's saying, he admits, hey, yeah, there's some things that Paul's writing about that are hard to understand. That's fine. But the overarching theme of scripture should be one that is clear and understandable. So let's look at a couple examples out of the Psalms of that. Psalm 19.7. So Psalm 19, the great psalm about the word of the Lord. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Okay, and then 119, 130, if you can turn there. Once again, Psalm 119, all about the word of the Lord. Let's start with 129. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Um, and I think it's necessary to talk about just in each of the instances that we can see in the New Testament, just with Jesus, he is of constant, he's constantly reminding the people that he'll say things like, have you not read? Do you know... Do you not know what the scriptures had to say about this topic? Um, or have you never read this in the scriptures? There's several instances in the scriptures where in the in the gospels that he says those things. He's never saying, "Hey, uh, Israelites, people um, of Israel, I know you don't get this because the Old Testament's really hard to understand." No, he's saying it's understandable to the people, um, and you know his teaching wasn't limited to the religious elite, obviously. Same for Paul. When he's writing to the churches in each of his letters, it's to everybody that encompasses the church. It's not just those that have, a, that have some kind of, have achieved some sort of educational or learning ability to understand it. No, he's speaking to everyone. Everyone across the bounds of that church um, are being instructed by Paul. 
So there's clear there's clarity in the scriptures, and it's an, that there's the the simple truths of scripture can be clearly understood um, without a lot of extra knowledge. Please understand, I'm not saying there's not a reason to study. So that's not my point. Um, and then the example of Gentile Christians, too. So you can make the argument, well, of course the Israelites know all this stuff about the Old Testament. They've been trained in that. That's all they've known. They've talked about it. They, The people of Israel are obeying Deuteronomy 6, and they're, you know, they're training their, peop- their children and teaching them the word of God as they go and where, everything that they do. But even the Gentile converts, um, Paul has the expectation that they should easily understand um, the gospel and that easily understand even the history of Old Testament Israel. So I think those are examples that the scriptures are clear and they're understandable for us. Okay, the next thing is the the necessity of the Bible. So the Bible is necessary for us as believers. Grudem defines this as, the necessity of scripture means that the Bible is necessary for knowing the gospel, for maintaining spiritual life, and for knowing God's will. But it's not necessary for knowing that God exists or for knowing something about God's character or moral laws. So let's talk about the first part, um, that what is the necessity of Scripture, and then we'll talk about the second. We'll, we'll do a couple examples of um, how the Scriptures are necessary for knowing the gospel and for maintaining spiritual life, and then we'll talk about the second part about what it's not necessary for with the last two references. So let's go to Matthew 4.4, which Dan reference today because it's Jesus during his temptation responding to scripture from Deuteronomy 8. Um, so let's, let's, let's go with verse 3. Let's start with that. And the tempter came and said to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread because Jesus, of course, had been fasting. Um, and Jesus says, but he answered, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the scriptures are, are going to be our source of life. So they are necessary for us, um, especially, obviously, in communicating us the need for the gospel and for maintaining spiritual life and to know God's will. Um, another one's 1 Peter 2, 2. I keep going back to Peter. All right, so 1 Peter 2.2 2 is equating um, the, the word to pure spiritual milk. So like newborn babes, newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. So craving that pure spiritual milk that could be the word of God, if you indeed have tasted that the Lord is good. So you need the word to grow you in sanctification and to grow you into spiritual maturity to know further God's will for your life. However, to know that God exists, that's the second part of the definition, it's not necessary. The Bible is not necessary for knowing that God exists. So you go to Psalm 19.1. I think I should call on my children to quote this, but I won't. (laughs) The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So, just by observing nature, that's general revelation, we can admit and know that God exists, right? So that's general revelation. 
So the first, what, six verses of Psalm 19 talk to God's general revelation, and then the rest of them talk about his special revelation, what he's, um, how he has um, revealed himself in his word. So that's kind of what this definition is. The first part is the special revelation. The second part is his general revelation. Um, if we go to Romans, two different sections in Romans. Um, these are going to be very familiar passages, obviously. Romans 1, so we're trying to make the argument that you can know God exists without the Bible. Nineteen, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Let's start with 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his internal power, and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So you can see, just in observing the world, they knew all men know that God exists in some form or fashion. They might not admit it. And then 2, 14 and 15, this is talking about the Gentiles, so that there are, not only does God exist, but that he also has moral laws that are inscribed on the conscience of man. Verse 14 says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So there's an understanding in their hearts of what is right and wrong, so God's character and moral laws can be understood there. So it sounds like the Bible is necessary for us to understand our need for Christ in the gospel um, in order for us to maintain our spiritual life and to know God's will. One more attribute is the sufficiency of the Bible. And this is defined by Grudem. As the sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contains all the words of God he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history, and that now it now contains everything we need to tell us for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. So scripture is sufficient. Let's go back to the Second Timothy reference, Second Timothy three, sixteen through seventeen. So we the first half of Second Timothy three sixteen was that all scripture is inspired by God. So all scripture is breathed out by God, but then what is it? It's sufficient for what? This is pretty much, it's profitable, it's to our benefit, this is what it does. And profitable for teaching, for, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So the emphasis here is on the scriptures. The scripture is, it's, it is um, profitable so that every man um, may be equipped to do good works. 
had this one here. Um, so it's sufficient in the sense that it's, it's always going to provide what we need at a given time. But does that mean it's going to answer every single question we might have? No. I mean, we might ask you know, just a generic uh, question, and it might not have the exact answer for us, but it's sufficient for what God knows that we need. Right? So it's going to answer the questions that, um, for what God would have us know. So if we go to Deuteronomy 29, 29, this just points out the, that we are not going to understand everything. Um, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So God, this is saying to Israel, what I've given you in my word is sufficient for you to do the things that I've commanded you to do. But there's an admit, admittance there by God saying the secret, in the scripture saying the secret things belong to the Lord our God. So maybe we don't know the answer to every situation as to why it is, but we can go to the scriptures to explain and to find the sufficiency for the things that we need. So those are the characteristics of the scriptures I wanted to go through. But I think Gruden does a good job writing these out, but I wanted to throw out just a couple things that are extremely well-written about the scriptures. Um, and we might not get to all of these. Yeah, we might. Okay, so this was my main reason for putting this on the board, so y'all just didn't have to, or on the uh, PowerPoint, so you didn't just have to listen to me read it. But this is the Westminster Confession of Faith. I've highlighted three parts of this in the, on the following pages that talk about um, the scriptures and what it says that. So think about the five, the five qualities we just talked about and see how those are evident in each of these statements. Okay, so the Westminster Confession of Faith says, it, this is in regarding to this, the scriptures, although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God, as to leave men unexcusable, yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary unto salvation? Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church and afterwards for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same wholly unto writing which makes the Holy Scripture to be the most necessary, those former ways of God revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. So you can see some of the words here, and I've highlighted them, sufficient, and then necessary, and then later on we're going to talk about the preservation of God's word, so it's preserving as well. Um, but you can see that whole aspect of special, I mean, uh, general and special revelation as well. Second point. Uh, actually, this is the sixth point, but the one I drew out. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge that the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. And if there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church, common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word of God, which are always to be observed. 
So you can see those words again about that. All right, so this is the one that really speaks to the clarity of the Scriptures. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all, yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place in Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. So this clarity um, is, is, is evident. What do we think about the Bible here at Calvary Bible Church? This is what is on our doctrinal statement if you look on the website. Every word in the original writings is inspired by God and is without error. So we've got authority and inerrancy there. It is accurate in all matters to which it speaks, spiritual, historical, and scientific. And the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are the foundation of the faith and practice of Calvary Bible Church. All right. Also, if you go to our website and look at the mission statement, it also has a link to a couple different things as well, and I won't read all of this, but just a couple parts. One is a couple affirmations by two evangelical groups in the last that have come together probably in the last 10 years or so. The first is by Together for the Gospel, and it says, We affirm the sole authority for the church is the Bible, and that it is verbally inspired, inerrant, infallible, and totally sufficient and trustworthy. So those words ringing true again. Um, these are orthodox views of the scriptures. And then in Article 2, um, we affirm that the authority and sufficiency of scripture extends to the entire Bible, and therefore that the Bible is our final authority for all doctrine and practice. I like this next part, though. We deny that any portion of the Bible is to be used in an effort to deny the truthfulness or trustworthiness of any other portion. We further deny any effort to identify a canon within the canon or, for example, to set the words of Jesus against the writings of Paul. Okay? I'm sure we'll get to some of that as we go forward. And I'm not going to read this, but here's another example. You can, you can click on our website. Um, and this is the Gospel Coalition. But once again, consistency in saying that the Word of God is inspired has authority, it's inerrant, it's without error, um, and it's complete, um, it's revelation, and it's sufficient for what God requires of us. So those are um, the ringing tones of um, systematic theology about the scriptures. Um, okay, so one last scripture, and you don't need to get your Bibles out again, and that's Mark thirteen thirty one. And this, this, the reason I put this right here is because I think this is going to propel us to the rest of our study as we go forward. Um, these are the coming weeks. Okay, so Jesus says in Mark 13, 31, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So there's a couple things Jesus is saying here. Um, he's saying that his words are truly divine because they are not part of the created order because heaven and earth are both going to pass away, right? Um, so his words will not pass away. So his world, words are divine and they're not from this world. And he, he claims that his words will stand forever. So his words, his teaching is going to stand forever. We can have confidence that God's doing his work to preserve his word in our world. So stepping back now that we've kind of talked about just a systematic approach to the scriptures and understanding um, what the scriptures are for us and those characteristics. I wanted to give you just kind of one of my primary resources. Is, imagine this, a book called How We Got the Bible. Um, 
And actually, the closing chapter kind of gives a defense of the reliability of the scriptures. And I wanted to give you guys some of that today, um, just, just kind of as we go forward. Um, the, the, the number, and we're going to delve into this next week especially because we're going to talk about ancient manuscripts. Um, but the number of materials on the biblical text are great. So we don't have the actual original letter, most likely, that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, let's say. But we have reliable evidence of it. Um, and we have reliable manuscripts that date close to the time of the apostles. Um, there are manuscripts that are, have been studied, and just alone for the, old, for the New Testament, there are upwards, a conservative guess is that there's 5,000 either manuscripts or pieces of manuscripts that we can use to verify the reliability of the scriptures. Okay, you might say that, hey, that's cool, but, I mean, that manuscript could be from, you know, 1,000 A.D. You know, that, how reliable is that? Some of our manuscripts that we have about the New Testament specifically are within um, 100 years of the um, apostolic age. Are you giving me the sign? Okay. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, they're within a close time of the apostolic age. So compare that, though, to some of the Greek um, or Roman literature that we have and we, those of us that love history hold to. The works, the, the Greek works of of Thucydides, which was written in 400 B.C., there are eight manuscripts. So you can go to, I don't know if you can go to Barnes & Noble anymore, if it's even open, but you can get the works of Thucydides. And what we have translated of Thucydides, what he was trying to say of the history of Greece at the time, is based on eight manuscripts. Okay, that doesn't seem very reliable in comparison to the thousands that we have. Um, another Example is the Roman historian Tacitus, um, which was written in 100 A.D. There's two manuscripts, two. So between the two of them, there's 10, and we've got the scriptures that have potentially 5,000. Um, not that that's necessary, but just for it shows God's work to preserve his word. The second thing, so that's the number of materials. The second would be the quality of the materials. Um, two, we'll talk about these going forward. Two manuscripts that are very important are the Vatican and the site. Sinaitic manuscripts, um, those most likely are only two centuries removed from the apostolic age, so a gap of 200 years, versus Thucydides, those eight documents that we trust for Thucydides to give us the uh, history of the Greek, of the Peloponnesian War, or whatever he wrote, in those come from the 9th and 11th centuries A.D. There's a gap. So remember I said 400 B.C. is when Thucydides wrote? The, the reliable manuscripts that we're hanging on to them as historians, so I'm think if you're a secular historian, you think about this reliability, is from 9 to 11 A.D. That's 1,500 years difference. And we're saying our, with our, our manuscripts that we have are within a couple hundred years of the apostolic age, um, so probably around 300 A.D. And then Tacitus, his, no, actually Tacitus is also around the same time, around the 9th century A.D. So his is another 800-year discrepancy where ours is a couple hundred years um, from the original sources. So I think that's important to see as it, it's, I think we can piece together the scriptures almost as a whole with all of the documents that we have. So God has been at work to preserve his word, um, and I think that gives credence to its reliability. Um, now, we as believers take the scriptures as faith too, 
but there is reliability there from the historical record as well. I think that's important for us to understand, and that is what we're going to talk about next week. Um, and I just wanted to whet your appetite with that. Does anybody, yes, no. Anybody have any questions? Be thinking of questions. I might open this up here in a week or two to ask, is there something you've always been curious about, about the scriptures, how we got them, why is it this way versus another way? If you have questions like that and you want to bring those to me, it most likely will be incorporated into my uh, discussion. Yes. Well, seeing that the original writings were in Latin, and I wonder if Latin was the primary, it was one of the languages of the people, maybe not always the primary one. Um, that's a good question. I mean, they didn't ever see the need for translation after that, so I don't know if initially they would have said that we're gonna, we only want to use the Latin translation. I think they probably were trying to submit to the authorities of Rome at the time um, because that's the language of the Roman government. But also, Koine Greek was such a big player at the time, you would think that they would written it, you know, wanted it to be in the Greek as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, once, once, we, once the printing press got on the stage in the Reformation, or during the Renaissance in the Reformation, the Catholic Church was absolutely opposed to every translation in the language of the people. So to say in 600 AD, did they only want it, were they trying to darken it? I don't know if that's, I haven't studied that enough to see, but maybe so. Yes, sir? Oh, no. <laughs> Great question. It's a great question. We'll, we'll talk about that here. Uh, talk about that. Where is that? Have oh, we got the New Testament? Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, really, are the commands of the Lord, yes. But did he think that, did he know truly that which letter was or not? I don't. You know, if he wrote, because obviously Paul wrote other letters as well. Um, that's, that's a great question. Like, did he know this is the letter that's inspired, this one's not? That's worth the question. It's, it's interesting. I'm not answering it right now. If y'all are just waiting with bated breath. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you've given it to us and that it is sufficient, that is without error, and it points us to our great need for you, um, Lord, and we are grateful for that. We ask that you would bless this day. Lord, pray that, um, that we would uh, minister to each other and that we would uh, commune in a way that brings you glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.